On June 13, 1971, the New York Times began publishing the Pentagon Papers, a classified history of the Vietnam War. This event subsequently led to the creation of a special investigative unit in the Nixon White House, which became known as the Plumbers. Author Michael Dobbs, formerly of the Washington Post, has written a book titled King Richard, which takes a look at that special unit, which eventually resulted in the resignation of the President of the United States. Fifty years later, writer Dobbs focuses on that time in our history, an event that is well known today as Watergate. Michael Dobbs, why did you call this book King Richard? Well, there's several reasons. I mean, one, obviously, it's an allusion to Shakespeare's plays, King Lear, uh, the Richard plays, and so on. But what made it specially apt in Richard Nixon's case is that he was named by his Quaker mother after the kings of England. Um, or his, He and his brothers were named after the kings of England, and Richard was named after Richard the Lionheart, uh, the Crusader king who preceded the more evil Shakespearean kings later. So I felt I was sort of getting a double reference in here by calling, uh, using the title King Richard for my book. When did you decide you even wanted to go there with this book? Well, some time ago, actually, when I was a reporter for the Washington Post, and uh, I was interested in history, and uh, the Nixon tapes were being released chronologically by the National Archives. So I'd go down to the National Archives in Washington and listen to all these tapes, which are much more extensive than anything that was released at the time. Um, And then I got sidetracked into other um, projects, but uh, I came back to it. And uh, so it's been percolating for the last 10 years or so, but I've actually only been focused on it for the last couple of years. What role did the 50-year-old Pentagon Papers release in the New York Times in June of 1971 have on this whole story you tell? I think that's a crucial date because it really marks the beginning of the Watergate story because when the Pentagon Papers were published uh, by the New York Times, the top secret history of the Vietnam War, the uh, Nixon administration went on the warpath looking for leakers and they found it a group that was known, I think, as the Special Investigations Unit or something like that. But it was more colloquial known as the plumbers, and their job was to plug leaks. And it was the same gang who went around trying to plug these leaks and uh, blacken the reputation of uh, the leaker of the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg, who later broke into the Watergate. So there's a direct connection uh, between the two cases. You have a quote early in the book from uh, Bob Haldeman, who was the chief of staff uh, for Richard Nixon, and it seemed to make an important point. Quote, Henry got Nixon cranked up, and then they started cranking each other up until they both were in a frenzy. Right. Actually, the curious thing is that the Pentagon Papers – dealt with the history of the Vietnam War prior to Nixon coming into office. So there was nothing terribly embarrassing to the Nixon administration about the Pentagon Papers. But uh, Kissinger in particular considered this a grave threat to 
American national security. He thought that uh, other world leaders would not want to deal with the U.S. um, if uh, the U.S. couldn't keep its secrets. So as Haldeman says, you know, he cranked Nixon up and they cranked each other up um, to some extent irrationally and went on the hunt for uh, leakers. And, you know, that really triggered this whole chain of events. I don't know uh, what this question sounds like, but how was it or how is it that Henry Kissinger, who's now 98 years old, uh, never went to prison? That sounds odd, I know. Um, Never really um, had a moment where he was in any kind of jeopardy in all this, but it was right in the middle of it. Right. Well, he wasn't involved with Watergate um, in uh, in the details of Watergate or the cover-up of Watergate. He was the national security advisor, so he managed to keep separate uh, himself separate from, you know, most of the scandals um, that embroiled the rest of the administration. He regarded himself as a substance person rather than a process person, so he wasn't involved in the cover-up, which was uh, the cover-up of the Watergate incident, which was actually the most, um, you know, dangerous uh, behavior uh, by Nixon and his aides. So he managed to keep out of it. I mean, you may say this is not very fair, but, you know, it's the way the law and the criminal system works. So how much of what happened to Richard Nixon started with Vietnam? I think there's a a big link between uh, Vietnam and uh, Watergate. I mean, first of all, um, you know, Vietnam sort of just... uh, absorbed the energies of the administration throughout the first term. And they were so focused on Vietnam. Then also Vietnam uh, triggered a wave of anti-war protests. And uh, that really defined Nixon's presidency. I mean, he was set himself as the, you know, uh, as the epitome of the establishment putting down this rebellion. And it was that mindset that uh, helped to lead to the to Watergate and the abuses of Watergate. If somebody buys this book, what do they get? Well, I think there've been a lot of obviously there've been a huge amount of books about Watergate and Nixon. I think the difference uh, between previous books and my books, I'd like to think, is the previous books, you know, tell the story from the outside. Um, The most famous one of all, All the President's Men, is a good example of that. It's the story of two journalists, you know, finding out about the scandal and eventually bringing down the president. Uh, But my book is told from the inside, uh, inside the rooms where all this happened in the White House. And uh, because of the incredible, uh, unique material that we have on the Nixon presidency, uh, not just the... 3,700 hours of tapes, but, you know, multiple investigations, multiple memoirs, uh, everybody taping each other in the end. We have a window onto this presidency at the moment of greatest crisis for the president uh, that is quite unique and that will never be repeated for any other American president because no other American president is going to tape himself the way Nixon did. At the end of your book, you explain kind of your approach. And I want to ask you about people like Tom Wolfe and Barbara Tuckman and 
uh, lots of others you mentioned, Chekhov and Balzac and Dickens, and put that all in perspective as to how you approach this book. Okay, well, I've tried to, you know, uh, with as with my other books, including One Minute to Midnight, which was about the Cuban Missile Crisis, I've tried to apply the techniques of fiction to nonfiction. And by that I mean, you know, uh, Tom Wolfe uh, wrote about uh, uh, how uh, you can create scenes and you create one scene leading to another scene and you string together a narrative. Um, and you can do that by using a lot of dialogue, uh, using a lot of inside detail, and trying to get inside of the heads of the characters. Now, the difference between fiction and nonfiction, of course, is that in nonfiction, everything has to be factually based, and you have to have a, a good source for it. You can't invent anything. And so it's often very difficult to do. Uh, I mean, what I think we're fortunate with the Nixon presidency, and perhaps this is unique among American presidents, is that you can really get in on the inside and tell the story like a novelist without, you know, making anything up and betraying the basic rules of, histor of being a good historian and uh, the basic rules of nonfiction. Why do so many people gush over Barbara Tuckman's work? Well, I read Barbara Tuckman, you know, when I, many years ago. Um, I, I mean, and the one book that really influenced me was The Guns of August, which is about the uh, months leading up to the beginning of the First World War. And she has a ability to create a scene that I think is really unrivaled among historians and nonfiction writers. I'm thinking particularly of the marvelous scene at the beginning of... Uh, the Guns of August, which describes the funeral of the King of England, and uh, it goes into great detail of, uh, you know, this colorful pageantry in a way that really brings history alive. And, uh, you know, that influenced me a lot, and I, that I tried to emulate. If we followed you around as you put this book together, first of all, what year would we see you starting the process, and then take us you know, a little bit through the journey of how you came up with all this information. Right. So I think about seven or eight years ago, I went out to the Nixon Library in uh, California um, at Nixon's uh, birthplace, actually, Yorba Linda, and I went through all the records, not only of uh, the president, but uh, his closest aides, people like Bob Haldeman, um, and I got a lot of material there. Uh, but then I was able to supplement uh, the work I did there with, of course, the tapes, uh, which are now uh, practically all of them are online. You don't even have to go to a library to listen to them. You can listen to them from the comfort of your own house. Um, but then there are all these other investigations that... Uh, there was an FBI investigation. There was a Congress, congressional investigation. There's a whole literature of books that have been written about Watergate. I mean, my bookshelf at home is full of, uh, bookcase at home is full of books about uh, uh, Nixon and Watergate. So it's a vast literature, which I tried to, you know, I didn't read every single word of every single book, but, you know, I tried to 
uh, read the most important ones. And, you know, it's like assembling a huge jigsaw puzzle. You get one piece here, another piece there, and eventually a, an interesting picture emerges. In your book, you also describe uh, your reaction to some of those books. The Jeb Magruder book, you say, was pedestrian. The John Dean book, Revealing. The Henry Kissinger book, Ponderous Yet Often Insightful. The Gordon Liddy book, Outrageously Frank. And the Bob Haldeman book, Invaluable Resource. Right. So you, there's a wide variety of quality in those books. I mean, actually, I was surprised by... I mean, you mentioned the Gordon Liddy book, which, I mean, Gordon Liddy is seen as the villain of this whole affair. He's a sort of completely crazy person. But uh, he managed to, you know, describe his mindset in a way that uh, one can relate to. I think in a way it's a forerunner of the mindset of the people who broke into the Capitol on January the 6th. Um, and uh, he's no holds barred about the way he describes things. Um, so... You may not, uh, obviously most of us don't agree with Gordon Liddy, but uh, he did write an excellent book by virtue of his frankness. Um, you also mentioned Bob Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff. Uh, and there are, he wrote several books, but the one that is most important as a source is his daily audio diary that he kept that was later transcribed, which uh, gives a day-by-day -day account of everything that was happening in the White House, around Nixon. He was with Nixon several hours every day. So even if the tapes didn't exist, um, those uh, uh, Haldeman diary entries would be incredibly valuable. As you know, Daniel Ellsberg is still alive. He's 90 years old. An awful lot of the people you write about have passed on. But go back to Ellsberg. Uh, explain his role in all this as it relates to his old boss, Henry Kissinger, and the Rand Corporation, yeah. and Robert McNamara, who, by the way, in an interview I did with him years ago, told me that he had a copy of the Pentagon Papers in his garage, and I asked him, have you ever read it? And he said, no. Well, Ellsberg was um, actually, originally, he was a uh, kind of super patriot when he went out to Vietnam, and then he became disillusioned. And he decided to leak uh, the official history of the uh, Vietnam War, which he had been um, one of the lead authors, uh, first to the New York Times and then to the Washington Post. Um, then he was pursued by the government and put on trial for leaking of papers. But it turned out, actually during the period that I write about in early 1973, that uh, the same gang that broke into the Watergate had broken into the offices of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist out in L.A., and that really contaminated the Ellsberg trial that was taking place contemporaneously with the Watergate trial. So when the judge heard about that, he immediately declared a mistrial or, or um, I mean, Ellsberg got off, and so the two trials then come together at that point, and the two cases that up until that point seemed to be unrelated, uh, everybody understood that there was a clear connection between the two cases. You know, uh, two names that pop up uh, in the middle of all this, 
in the editing of the Pentagon Papers and getting them ready for the New York Times that two men who would send conservatives crazy right now were Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky. Did you examine any of that relationship with Ellsberg? Right. I must say, I mean, I write about Ellsberg in my book, but um, he's not one of the leading characters. So I don't get into some of the intricacies of his relationship with Chomsky and others. I mean, I focus on the main characters, um, you know, particularly Ellsberg himself, obviously. But going back again to the origin of all this, if Robert McNamara hadn't asked for a history of Vietnam and Daniel Ellsberg hadn't been the one putting it together and then deciding he wanted to leak it to the New York Times, given what you know about the Nixon crowd, would they have ever formed the the plumber group? Plumbers Group. Well, I think you can't over-exaggerate the role of the Pentagon Papers. I mean, there were other causes uh, for Nixon's resentment. And one cause in particular was the 1960 election, which he lost by a very close margin to John F. Kennedy, a much closer margin than the last election. Uh, And he respected the results of the election. He decided not to contest the election, but it left him with an abiding hatred and resentment of the Kennedys and their ilk, as he would put it. So he felt that he was, you know, unfairly treated and was determined that this would not happen to him again. So that was another source of his determination in 1972 to gather as much political intelligence as he could on his enemies. And it was that mindset that also led to Watergate. So it wasn't just the Pentagon Papers. There were other sources of you know, Nixon's uh, resentment, and which translated into eventual crimes. Anything new that you found? I think, I mean, there were sort of new details, and the book is full of small, revealing details. I didn't rewrite the history of Watergate or the history of our understanding of Nixon, but I think, you know, I tried to get inside the White House so it's not the uh, history itself that is new, but the way in which it is being told that is new, and all the, you know, little details that make history come alive that is new. Tell us, though, how you got special tour of the White House and you talked to uh, an architect that, and, and why you did that. Well, I've been to the White House actually very often um, as a journalist, so I knew the... Um, Uh, you know, the public rooms of the White House, including the press room, uh, some of the rooms in the West Wing. And I'd often been next door to the EOB, the executive office building, where Nixon had a private hideaway. Um, I haven't actually been up into the private residence of the White House. Um, I was able to accumulate uh, or discover notes about the private residence, uh, including uh, a study by uh, an architect of the uh, architectural changes that were made during the Nixon period and the, all the decorations and so on, which were very helpful to me. And also in um, the University of uh, Texas at Austin, there are the Nixon, uh, there are the Woodward Bernstein papers, which include, they were given a tour of the White House and the private uh, areas of the White House. And a man called Scott Armstrong, who was one of um, uh, Woodward's researchers, he wrote an incredibly detailed account describing, you know, every room in the White House 
during the Nixon period, which was very helpful to me in, uh, you know, recreating that. Because all this started with the plumbers, go to where that started, who was responsible for creating it, and uh, what happened after the break-in at the psychiatrist's office in Beverly Hills? Yeah, well, Nixon had a guy called Chuck Colson, who he thought of as his his can-do person who was in charge of all the dirty tricks. And in fact, we have a recording a few days after the Pentagon Papers came out of Nixon and Colson talking to each other. And Colson uh, proposes hiring a former CIA man by the name of Howard Hunt to uh, help with this uh, plumbing unit. And um, Nixon uh, sort of asked a few questions about Hunt. Interestingly, later on, Nixon swears to John Ehrlichman, another of his advisors, that he never heard of Hunt prior to Watergate. But Hunt, together with Gordon Liddy, led the team that broke into uh, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist out in L.A. And then later, they were the key people who led the team of burglars uh, that broke into the Watergate. So, you know, there's an obvious connection. And you can also show that Nixon personally was involved in the recruitment of the plumbers, including Hunt. If you were to name the three or four top officials that were involved in the planning of paying off the Cubans who went into the Democratic National Committee and uh, Liddy and Hunt and all these people, where did that start? Right. Actually, this is a a continuing mystery of Watergate, who actually ordered it, Um, because... uh, I believe Haldeman when he says that uh, Nixon didn't order Watergate. I mean, he created the system of abuses that led to Watergate. He caused Watergate, but he didn't actually order the break-in himself. And he probably wasn't aware of it until after the break-in. So it was rather like the King of England, Henry II, who who told his knights, uh, who will rid me of this turbulent priest, referring to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they went off and murdered the archbishop. And it was a bit like the, with that with Nixon. You know, the, his courtiers would hurry to carry out his wishes, and sometimes the system just fed on itself. But to answer your question, um, you know, the Watergate resulted from the president's thirst for intelligence, and that uh, the signals came from Haldeman, to the Committee to Re-Elect the President, um, which was run by Nixon's friend, John Mitchell, the former Attorney General. And then it went down to the uh, Mitchell's number two, John Mitch, uh, 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 Jeb Magruder. So as far as we know, you know, Jeb Magruder confessed to ordering the Watergate break-in. Uh, John Mitchell never confessed to ordering the Watergate break-in. So we don't know precisely, you know, at what level um, it was ordered. Um, But it's clear that there was pressure from the White House. There was also pressure from below, from people like um, uh, Gordon Liddy, who, you know, wanted to, uh, uh, was always proposing these crazy ideas for break-ins and so on and so on. And Magruder and Mitchell found themselves caught in between these two sort of uh, pressures. Uh, And, you know, they just took the easy way out. They kind of signed off on it 
without really understanding what they were doing and certainly not what it was going to lead to. Gordon Liddy went on to be a talk show host, but he lived until this year at age 90 right. when he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, served the longest of any of these fellows in prison, four years. Uh, I don't know that this matters, but why did Jimmy Carter commute his sentence? I don't know why. I haven't sort of looked into that. I mean, it's true that Gordon Liddy was the most unrepentant of all the burglars. He refused to cooperate in any way with the prosecution or with the investigators. So he ended up, you know, spending more time in prison than any other. Uh, The reason for his commuting, uh, Jimmy Carter commuting his sentence, I'll have to ask Kai Bird, who's just written a biography of... uh, uh, of Jimmy Carter, but um, you know that's beyond the scope of my book. Actually, I don't want to bore everybody, but I'm going to read a list quickly of all the people that you talk about in your book and um, give the number of months that they served in prison. Chuck Colson, seven months. John Dean, four months. Ehrlichman, eighteen. Bob Haldeman, eighteen. Howard Hunt, thirty-three months. Gordon Liddy, four years. Jeb Magruder, seven months. James McCord, only four, and you can explain that in a second, four months. Um, Dwight Chapin, nine months, doesn't get much attention in your book. John Mitchell, 19 months. Explain all that and the obstruction of justice versus just good old ordinary lying. Well, some, I mean, I think the obstruction of justice in this case was tantamount to perjury, which is tantamount in plainer language to lying. So I don't see the difference there. As, a, as to why some of them got longer sentence, sentences and some of them got shorter sentences, I mean, that was largely due to, I mean, uh, Liddy got a longer sentence because he was so deeply involved and was completely unrepentant. And the people who got shorter sentences, like John Dean uh, uh, and James McCord, cooperated with the investigation. So there was some kind of uh, plea dealing going on. Uh, James McCord, who you mentioned, is extremely interesting, I think, because it was his decision to break ranks with the rest of the conspirators that really led to the unraveling of the whole affair. And uh, he was upset that he and the people who broke into the Watergate, the Cubans, were being made to take the blame for, for it all. And other people, particularly Jeb Magruder, were getting off and flattering articles were being written in the press about people like Jeb Magruder, um, who was uh, running the Bicentennial Commission, or the, 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 the inaugural uh, festivities. So it was really uh, McCord's decision to cooperate, which came about as a result of the pressure that was put on him by the judge, uh, Sharika, that led to the very rapid unraveling of the uh, scandal, and it's that period that I describe in my book. You give a lot of attention to Judge Sirica, uh, and I almost thought as I read it that you're giving him more attention than you were even your um, fellow Washington Post folks, uh, Woodward and Bernstein. Why so much attention to Judge Sirica? Well, I think it was, you know, I'm trying to explain how this very disciplined White House, uh, very disciplined administration, unraveled, and how the president's men uh, all started turning on each other. As Nixon put it, they started pissing on each other, and then they pissed on the president. How that happened. 
and um, the pressure that was put on the Watergate defendants, particularly James McCord, by the judge, Sharika, who wouldn't accept the uh, stories that the uh, White House people had come up with. Uh, he insisted on knowing the truth. It was really uh, that that cracked the case. I mean, it's true that before um, the Washington Post and other journalists had done a lot of good work, um, you know, keeping the story alive. But by January of 1973, the time of Nixon's second inaugural, uh, Nixon really thought he had put uh, Watergate behind him. Most of the leads had evaporated. And it was only because, uh, you know, it, it was that the, I mean, the journalists took the ball and ran with it in the early months. But after the early months, it was the legal system and the congressional investigations that really kicked in and uh, led to the unraveling of Watergate and the unraveling of the Nixon White House. Small sidebar, because you mentioned it, that uh, Judge Tatel uh, gave you a tour of the chambers of John Sirica. Judge Tatel uh, yeah. uh, on the circuit court here in town, uh, interesting man, among other things, that he's been a judge and he's blind. Uh, yeah. Tried to get him to talk to us about that and haven't been successful so far. But talk talk about uh, what impact that had of going to his chambers. Yeah. Uh, well, he um, introduced me to another judge, uh, Judge McFarlane, who actually uh, is the present occupant of the Sharika chambers. Uh, I knew uh, David Tatel, who's, as you say, he's a very remarkable person uh, socially. And um, he kindly invited me down to the... Um, to the U.S. Uh, District Court in on Pennsylvania Avenue, um, just so that I could get a sense of you know what it was like and to be able to describe Shirika's courtroom, in which uh, you know these events take to take place. Because I wanted to describe in particular Jeb Magruder's perjury and uh, James McCord's reaction to this perjury, which, as I say, as I've mentioned. I think, is the catalyst for the whole affair unraveling. Judge Sherika wrote a book um, to set the record straight. Did you read it, and what did you get out of it? Yeah, I read it. That's a pretty good book, and it gives an insight into you know, his personal um, experiences. And, uh, uh, I mean, it describes you know, how he was uh, completely, uh, how he rejected the explanations of the Watergate burglars and insisted on knowing the truth. And it goes into his own chain of uh, thinking, um, which is helpful. So I use, I read the book and I use uh, quite a bit of it um, to describe those scenes inside the district courthouse. You were talking earlier about moments that you discovered as you went through your research. Uh, here's my moment. Um, didn't remember this particular thing uh, that you say, um, you're talking about Deep Throat. Uh, and on February the 16th, 1973, which uh, is the early part of his second term, you say Nixon was pretty sure where leaks were coming from. Felt, meaning Mark Felt, had been talking privately to Time magazine. Uh, th is that new to you or I just missed it earlier? Um, actually, we wrote about that when Mark Felt was uh, outed as uh, the uh, identity of Deep Throat. Uh, and then Mark Felt died a, a few years ago. And actually, I was still at the Post, and I wrote a big profile about Mark Felt. 
Um, so those tapes uh, in which Nixon talks about his suspicions of Mark Felt, um, they were they came out a few years ago, and uh, we reported on that in the Washington Post a few years ago. But it's largely been overlooked, um, and it certainly wasn't was overlooked during the many years when nobody knew who Deep Throat was. But actually, the evidence was all there. Uh, if one had chosen to examine it more carefully at the time. Uh, and Nixon certainly suspected Mark Felt of perhaps not of being deep throat, but he certainly suspected of him of being a leaker. When you did the piece on that, did you find out who the new Time magazine lawyer was that leaked that information to uh, uh, President Nixon? I have a suspicion, um, and uh, I mentioned a name in the article, but that's never been confirmed. Um, and there are very few people who it could be because um, it has to be, um, you know, somebody who was, uh, we know that uh, Mark felt uh, that a leaker, that, that one of the um, lawyers for Time magazine had informed the Nixon administration that uh, there was a leaker. Um, so there are not many lawyers for Time magazine that really fit the bill. Well, one of the things you point out in the book about Mark Felt wanting to be the FBI director, and he was leaking this information before the decision was made. Why was he taking that risk? Did you find that out? Right. Well, he very – I mean, the the he was the number two to J. Edgar Hoover, and uh, he felt after Hoover's death that he was the rightful uh, successor to Hoover – and, you know, I think this is often the case with whistleblowers or people who leak. You know, they have mixed motives. They have – there's an honorable motive that they want to expose wrongdoing in the government. And there's also frequently sort of private motives as well. And I think this is particularly the case in Mark Felt's case that, um, you know, most people are not black and white. Many people are shades of gray and they have mixed motives, some of which are honorable and some of which are – are not so honorable, uh, sort of personal reasons for uh, leaking information. And I think that was the case with Mark Felt slash Deep Throat. Did you change your mind about anything as you did all the research and writing about this book? Um, I wouldn't say that I became sympathetic to Nixon, but I do think I was forced to step into Nixon's shoes and see events from his point of view. So that did demand a degree of uh, empathy. And I also began to see things in shades of gray, as I've mentioned, rather than black and white. I mean, actually, you know, as a writer, particularly trying to write a kind of novelistic account of Watergate, I don't think it's my job to preach to readers and tell readers what to think. I want to give readers the evidence and for readers themselves to draw the conclusions of who is admirable, who is not admirable. So I kind of keep myself in the background a bit. Um, you know, the purpose of uh, fiction is not to instruct, as Somerset Maughan said. The purpose is to entertain uh, and to retain the reader's interest. And um, so I try not to you know, put myself into a position of saying this person is good, this person is bad. I try to let readers, you know, make draw those conclusions for themselves. Very few of the people you write about are still alive. Uh, Dwight Chapin is. He's 80 years old. John Dean's 82. 
there are a couple of others, but not many. As you look back on all the, whether it's Colson, Dean, Ehrlichman, L. Patrick Gray, Haldeman, Hunt, all these people, uh, who would be at the top of your list for strong people and who would be at the bottom of your list for weak people in, the, in, in just watching their, the way they dealt with all this? Well, many people sort of worked, um, uh, you know, uh, had mixed motives for what they did. Um, I mean, I think that Jeb Magruder, uh, who was the executive director of the committee to re-elect, uh, the, known as Creep, and he doesn't come off very well in my book, partly because he's typical of a sort of careerist, a not particularly ideological or political, but just sort of climbing up to the top and uh, therefore sort of not really drawing the line and just going along with, uh, in this case, a conspiracy, um, being easily pressured into perjuring himself. So he's certainly an example of a weak character. Uh, I mean, actually, on the other side, I mean, Dean's motives, I think, were mixed. Um, You know, on the one hand, he was a true whistleblower. On the other hand, he wanted to ensure that he would not be dragged into Watergate himself. He's a very astute person and a lawyer who realized much earlier than all the others in the White House the dangers that he was exposing himself to. So there's kind of mixed motivations in Dean's case. I came to have a higher regard, actually, for Bob Haldeman, um, Nixon's chief of staff, who I came to think of as quite a selfless person. I mean, he's got a very bad press at the time as one of the sort of ruthless uh, members of Nixon's Berlin Wall, as it was put, uh, who, you know, imposed ruthless discipline on the White House. But he, in many ways, is a selfless servant who was, you know, did his best to, you know, try to act as a cushion between Nixon and his worst instincts. Um remained loyal to Nixon right to the end, um, you know, faithfully served Nixon, but at the same time, you know, I think is a, de- uh, a decent person. Of course, you know, he, like so many others, were eventually dragged down by Watergate and had to serve time in prison as a result of their uh, perjury, um, in, in Haldeman's case and others. Interesting thing. He died uh, in 1993 at age 67, the youngest of everybody, and left uh, first. Uh, did Were you able to talk to anybody who was involved in Watergate for the book? Well, I talked briefly to Colson. I talked briefly to uh, John Dean. Um, uh, I think they were the main ones. Um, I talked to lesser people in the administration. Um, but, you know, I really didn't need to have extensive interviews because the contemporaneous material is so extensive. Uh, I mean, they've also, many of these people have given oral histories of their own to um, the Nixon Library, among other people. So, you know, just mastering all this contemporaneous material, plus all their memoirs, um, plus the tapes, I didn't need to listen to people's explanations 50 years later of what had happened or or their probably hazy uh, reconstructions uh, almost 50 years after the event. Your background, where were you born? I was actually born in Northern Ireland in Belfast. I was brought up in the UK. 
Uh, I spent a lot of my time uh, following my parents, who were diplomat, British diplomats, and uh, I eventually came to the U.S. to work for the Washington Post. How long were you at the Post? About 20 years. I started off as a foreign correspondent, actually, in Poland, and then had one of the sort of remarkable um, stories to cover as a foreign correspondent, the collapse of communism, which I saw pretty much all the way through from Poland uh, in 1980 with the rise of solidarity to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Why did you leave the post? Um, I was offered a buyout and I, you know, at a certain point, journalists become a little restless and uh, it's a great job for a young person. Um, You know, sometimes journalism is considered the first rough draft of history and I certainly was the had a front row seat to incredible events, including the collapse of communism. But then after a bit, I wanted to write, you know, more than just the first draft. I wanted to write the second draft. And I wanted to get inside all these places that I hadn't been able to as a reporter, you know, inside the Kremlin, inside the White House at key moments. And so this was actually a motivation for writing this book, um, you know, to discover all these inside account of what had happened that you know is closed to most reporters even the most even the most brilliant ones how many books have you written i think uh this is my seventh i believe um i wrote three on the cold war beginning with uh down with big brother which was about the collapse of communism i wrote one about madeleine albright i wrote a book about saboteurs which was uh, Nazi saboteurs landing in Long Island with a mission to uh, 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 blow up aluminum factories in the World War II, um, an extraordinary case. Um, and I wrote uh, a book most recently about uh, U.S. immigration policies leading up to World War II and the Holocaust called The Unwanted. And where would you put this book on uh, the list of uh, how you felt when it was all over? Well, I mean, I'm probably best known for uh, One Minute to Midnight, which, um, you know, I think uh, many people would agree was, uh, particularly at the time it was written, was a groundbreaking uh, book on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, So this book breaks less news, certainly, than One Minute to Midnight in the sense that, you know, it doesn't there aren't any major new revelations about Watergate and Nixon in it, but I'm able to get inside the White House in a way that's, um, I think, you know, no, uh, very few historians or journalists come to that will ever be able to do again. I mean, Woodward, uh, my former colleague at the Washington Post, is famous for his, you know, reconstructions of every presidency, but he relies on interviews and there's a big difference between after the fact interviews with uh, insiders and actually being able to listen to their conversations in real time um and that's what i was able to do with this book so um i mean this book is different to the other books but i think it is interesting in its own right a couple of more questions john mitchell never admitted he had anything to do with this why I think he went pretty much to his deathbed saying that he hadn't ordered Watergate 
and denying the accusations made against him by, among other people, his number two, uh, Jeb Magruder. You know, I mean, that was just the kind of person he was, that um, everybody had a different way of, um, you know, responding to these charges. And as far as Nixon, as far as Mitchell was concerned, he, as people put it, had decided to stonewall it, and he maintained that position right to the end. Um, he probably also thought that he was burnt a bit by the Nixon White House and made to carry the can for, you know, crimes that were not really, he didn't really originate. Uh, I mean, the, his committee was just responding to pressure from the White House. It was not as though Watergate was, uh, the Watergate break-in was dreamed up by Mitchell and Magruder. They were responding to pressure from the White House and from Colson. Um, so, you know, he decided that he simply wasn't going to cooperate. I mean, this is just a, the different reactions. There was a mention that there was, you know, you talked about 3,700 tapes or whatever. Um, what was the 2013 release and why did it yeah. come so late? Well, there had been a number of tapes uh, released on the orders of the Supreme Court, um, including a couple of so-called smoking gun tapes that uh, tied Nixon to the cover-up. And um, then, but only a few hundred hours were released um, at the time and in the years immediately afterwards. And then there was a long legal fight for the control of the rest of the tapes because Nixon and his family took the view that they were private property. And that took, you know, three decades almost to sort out. And eventually a deal was struck between the National Archives and uh, the Nixon family that would allow all but a small portion of the tapes to be uh, published, uh, to be released. Um, and that deal also involved the Nixon Library being brought into the U.S. presidential library system. So it gave a scholarly legitimacy to this, what would otherwise have just been a private library. So uh, as a result of that, the National Archives, they had to you know, first of all, listen to the tapes, some of which are very difficult to decipher. They had to index all the tapes. They had to decide what parts were still covered by national security or privacy exemptions. And all that took, you know, decades. And it was not until about uh, 10 years ago or so that uh, we really got a complete record, chronological record of all the tapes. Last question, a uh, very important question. You have a picture photograph in your book of a tray and on the tray is a, 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 a picture of pineapple and cottage cheese why right. did you why did you put that in the book what was the point yeah i mean i think you know this goes to the question of uh, you know the detail that brings history alive and the character of the people you describe in history alive and, uh, you know, I don't want to tell readers or, uh, about Nixon's uh, character or far less to psychoanalyze him. I believe in the old journalistic adage of show, uh, don't tell. And I think the uh, picture of Nixon's customary lunch of cottage cheese and dull pineapple, which he ate day after day, month after month, year after year, really is an insight into the grim self-discipline of our 37th president in a way that sort of encapsulates, you know, 
the joylessness of his um, uh, pre- of his you know entire life in a way that he had this meal day after day when he could have uh, you know had much more interesting fare. Um, it really describes Nixon in a way that it would take many many paragraphs of psychoanalysis to capture that same thought. Michael Dobbs, author of King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy. We thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been great to be with you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 